Let us pray together. Our Father, we pray once again that the Holy Spirit will do that work in which He so delights, that He will glorify Christ to us. Bring His words and His works before us, and so bring His great and glorious person to us. Fill our hearts with admiration, with wonder, with awe, and with deepening love for our Lord Jesus Christ, who stands revealed in this glorious portrait. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So after some time now, we're digging back into the Gospel of Matthew, and I give you the outline that I've presented a a couple of times before of the entire book, so you see where we are, and you remember the shape and the argument, if you will, of Matthew's Gospel. Each Gospel is unique in its portrait of Christ. They all harmonize, but they all magnify a particular aspect of His person and work. And Matthew's Uh, burden is to present Jesus as King Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. So his gospel is shaped like an inverted uh, parallel or a chiasm, as you see. Each part has an answering part except for the middle part. Um, I can very simply say the way Matthew shaped his gospel by saying that it's shaped around five discourses, five talks, five lessons that are sandwiched between six narrative portions. The gospel begins and ends with a narrative portion, and in between are five discourses. So you see it begins, chapters 1 through 4, narrating the king's preparation and so forth. You see in the middle, chapter 13, is the pivot of the gospel, where uh, Israel has rejected its king, and the leaders have committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gives a series of parables about the mysteries of the kingdom, outlining the kingdom program now that Israel has responded in rejection. And we see that continue. So uh, bolded there is uh, part C prime, C stroke, the king's authority displayed in chapters 19 through 22, and that's what we begin today. We had just finished studying the discourse for kingdom citizens in chapter 18. We talked about church discipline, about discipleship, a number of things. And uh, here we have a narrative that stresses the king's authority. That's what I'm going to open up for you today, an overview of chapters 19 through 22. And notice that we only have one discourse left after this, and then one narrative portion. So we are nearing the climax of Matthew's gospel. So now before we start the outline, let me set the stage for chapters 19 through 22. Where has Jesus been mostly heretofore? Where has he been ministering? Largely, he's been ministering in the area of Galilee to the north of the land of Israel. But now he's going to change his course, and this is a a very climactic change. But there have already been rumblings. There have already been Look at Matthew 15, verse 1 with me. Flip those pages or tap those screens, whichever applies. But Matthew 15, verse 1, he is ministering in Galilee, but we read this. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus, what? From Jerusalem, and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now this is a foreshadowing of things to come. Word of Jesus' ministry has reached Jerusalem, and obviously it's not good. 
They haven't sent people to welcome him or commend him or to uh, affirm him. They've sent people to challenge him because they heard that he's not doing what they do. He's not following their program. So at this point, that's just a, a rumbling. But now the text turns. Turn to chapter 16 and verse 21 in the narrative we were in before. And let's remind ourselves of this note. Now remember, Jesus had asked the disciples who they said he was. Peter confessed him as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said he would build his church on that confession. And then he said that this in verse uh, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And you remember that shocked Peter to his very soul. Now, that he would go to Jerusalem was not a shock, but what he said would happen to him, uh, that was the shock. Now, at that point, he says, we're going to need to do that. Well, in the section we're studying today, they begin to do that. They turn and they head for Jerusalem. Look at chapter 19, verse 1, that begins our section. Now, it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, now let me pause, that's one of Matthew's seams. If you look at all five discourses, you see they all end this way, with virtually these same words. Now, it happened when Jesus had finished these words. That signals that a discourse has just ended. And then when we get to the end of the fifth, Matthew says, when Jesus had finished all these words, signaling that that's the last discourse. But let's read on. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. What's he doing now? He's heading for Jerusalem. So this long simmering clash that loomed in the future is now looming closer. Jesus is going for the predicted collision with the leaders that will result in his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. So, this is what we're saying in this section. This section narrates Jesus' approach to an initial entry into Jerusalem. That's what this section is about. And in the first part of this section, as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus prepares his disciples by repeatedly shocking them repeatedly jolting them. And in this way, he shows his authority by reminding, as it were, his disciples that his values are not the values of the religious structure, that he didn't accept their program. He hadn't come up to come down to prop up the religious mechanism of Judaism of that day. He'd come to bring the Word of God to fulfill all righteousness and to save his people from their sins. And so he'd come to preach the Word of God purely and not to not to flatter, not to please, not to satisfy anybody except for his father. So he rocks somebody's world in this section. Let's begin looking then at uh, Roman numeral one. The king rocks his disciples. That's the first in Jesus' path. He begins by rocking his disciples. He, he shocks them, he shakes them, he jolts them, he says and does not what they would expect. And you see, this is very important because when it comes to Jerusalem, he's not going to take the course they expect. They would expect him to come and be celebrated as king and be enthroned as king, but that's not what's going to happen. 
So we begin letter A with three shockers that hit home. And you will not be surprised that we, we were going to find a number of sets of three in this section. It is, after all, still Matthew. And Matthew loves his threes. He heard Jesus and saw Jesus in threes. There are three shockers for his disciples, and they hit home. They're in the, the, the range of home life, the normal family concerns. The first is the matter of divorce. That's the shocking part. It's about marriage. It's about divorce. You see in... Uh, Verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. See, they didn't come to learn from him. They came to put him on the spot. Pro tip, that never ends well. That just never ends well, and it doesn't for them. But they come to him testing him, and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? The LSB uh, translates that well. There were a couple of main schools of thought about divorce. Oh, let me just say uh, in passing... Today, my intent is not to teach all these sections. Obviously, there isn't time for that. My intent is to show you the flow of this section. Then we'll come back and we'll study each of them uh, in portion. But in that day, there were two leading thoughts about marriage and divorce. And, and one was that, uh, the, that marriage could not be permitted except under uh, uh, s- uh, cases of uh, adultery or something like that. Uh, and then remarriage was a possibility. The other school of thought, uh, Rabbi Hillel, was that uh, divorce was permitted for virtually anything. That if a wife uh, burnt dinner, uh, her husband could divorce her. If she was unpleasant, he could divorce her. So you see, the reasons for divorce were very, very casual. That was the prevailing view. That's what most people thought in this day. So that you need that backdrop to understand what comes. What comes is that Jesus doesn't go to the tradition of the elders at all. He goes back to Genesis, reminds them how what God instituted by creation and creation ordinance of marriage. And then he says, verse 6, uh, they're no longer two but one flesh, but therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they, goggling, said to him, well, then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been that way. So he goes back to God's design and creation, reminds them of that. That's the standard, not the standard that the uh, rabbis set by tradition or that the society has fallen to. God's standard is the standard. And so uh, he says, uh, I say to you, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Well, now there's two shockers there, really. One is that Jesus is saying, no, a divorce is not permissible for just any reason. So there goes the popular view. He affirms that it's permissible in cases of, of um, sexual immorality, not commanded, as they said, but permissible. But then he says that a marriage not morally, not God-honoringly, uh, 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 undergone, a divorce not undergone that way, uh, you can't have a moral remarriage after that. You can't have a moral remarriage after an immoral divorce. Now, nobody held that. It, to the best of my knowledge, that wasn't anybody's position. And so, you see, they're shocked. And look what the disciples say in verse 10. <laughs> If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. 
kind of shows you their, their feelings about marriage, doesn't it? They want to make sure there's a way out. And how many people think of that today? They're looking for the, the loophole uh, from the start, not, not the right attitude. But notice that Jesus' response is, uh, is not at all mollifying. He basically says, well, not all men can accept this statement, I think meaning what they had just said, but he goes on to say another thing that's shocking in that culture, which is, yeah, some people don't need to get married. Now, that was not the view of the rabbis. Everybody should get married. But Jesus says, well, there are people who, who uh, choose not to get married, in fact. So he has shocked them, and he shocked them, and he shocked them again in what he said. He first rocks his disciples. They should get used to this, but they haven't yet, obviously. But they need to be prepared for what's coming and expect to be shocked. Now, the next topic that is shocks is children, verses 13 through 15. Some children are brought to him to lay his hands on and, and pray and bless them. And look at verse 13, the disciples rebuked them. Well, I remind you of what we studied in chapter 18. That, that was a common attitude. Children were not, you know, our future to them. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't idolize and exalt children in that day. They were to serve in some ways, but they weren't, everything didn't revolve around children. And so, no, don't bother the master with those children. That's not what he's here for. They're not really worth the distraction. And Jesus' response is to uh, counter them. Say in verse 14, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Well, I hope at least some of you are thinking, wait a minute, didn't we just see that? (laughs) Yes, we did at the beginning of chapter 18. Is chapter 18 fairly close to chapter 19? Fairly close. They'd been arguing about who should be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus do to respond? Called a kid over and said, you need to humble yourself. You need to be like this child. Well, what did that child do? He just came when Jesus called him and stood where Jesus put him. You need to be like this, he says. And now here they are again. They're discouraging children from being brought to Jesus. So when he counters them and he lays his hand on these children, that's countercultural. That's not common for that day. Jesus is not acting according to script. Well, not their script, but he's acting according to his own script and the Father's script. So, divorce, children, and then next, wealth, works, life, and salvation. Just to basically put it, you'll call this the story of the rich young ruler. Well, this young fellow is is the sort of fellow that anyone would admire in that day. I mean, he's what everybody ought to be. He's what every every mother would hope to have for his son. What, What could you say about him? Well, he was moral by his own account, and he was wealthy. He was concerned about eternal life, and he came to Jesus. And yet Jesus just tears him open and exposes him as not being what he thinks he is. He says, well, he's kept all the commandments, which, you know, you always chuckle when you read that. And so Jesus goes right to the heart of his issue. How much does he really love his his neighbor? How much does he really love his possessions? Jesus puts his finger on that sore thing right there and says, we'll tell you what, you're just missing one thing. You go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And so when he said that, that was not at all expected. You you do have eternal life by obeying the commandments in the thinking of that day. 
And if you're wealthy, it's because God has blessed you. It's a sign of God's favor that you're wealthy. He's wealthy. He's kept all the commandments. Oh, but what does Jesus' stepbrother, uh, his half-brother James say? Uh, If we break one commandment, we've broken them all. And Jesus goes to the heart of where he doesn't love God or his neighbor most. He loves his possessions most, and he exposes that. But what I want you to notice is verse 25. Jesus has said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Let me just pause with an aside there. If you've ever heard somebody say that there was a gate called Camel's Gate, that the camels had to get, un- get unpacked and had to go through on their knees, and that's what the, the, the picture is here. There is no evidence that there ever was such a gate. That that's made up. That's not, and Jesus is not saying it's, it's difficult. He's, he's saying it's pretty much impo- it's impossible for a person to do. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, how easy is that? You can't do it. <laughs> than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And look at verse 25. Here's my point. The disciples heard this and they were astonished. You see, shock after shock after shock. They're shocked to hear that. That's not even them. Now, this is not the Pharisees. It's the disciples. And they're still shocked to hear that. And they ask a really good question. Well, then who can be saved? And that's where a lot of Christians would say, well, anybody, you know, you just have to make the right decisions. But Jesus' answer is, oh, with people, it's impossible but with God, all things are possible. In other words, no, a person can't, in fact, get himself saved. God has to save people. It has to be an act of God. Well, now that takes me back, does it you? When the angel was explaining to Joseph about why it was okay to marry Mary, that, that sh- this virgin was about to conceive and bear, well, was, had conceived and was going to bear the Son of God, and he told him he should call his name Jesus because why? He himself will save his people from their sins. And so again, he says here, uh, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible, including the saving of a sinner. So they've been shocked yet again. So that's the first set. Oh, look, there's three of them. So there's a set of three shockers that hit close to home. Then there are three shockers that look ahead, things to come for them. Verse 27, Peter, obviously kind of mulling this whole thing about wealth and and rewards and and leaving everything over, he says, well, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus says something we'll, we'll have fun looking at, that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Just interesting in in passing right now, there are many really good Christian brothers who think there's no future for Israel. It's all spiritual. The church is is the spiritual Israel, the fulfillment of Israel. No literal kingdom, no literal Israel, and yet Jesus has them sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus has a a different view of the future than, than these Christian men. But that's their reward. And he says, everyone who's left all these things will find more in my kingdom. But what I really want you to notice for our overview is verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Well, that's topsy-turvy. <laughs> that's, that's upside down. And yes, that's exactly the point. Again and again, he turns things upside down. And he's reminding them that the kingdom of God is upside down of the way things are now. And in the kingdom of God, the, the people who are respected and looked up to today uh, will be nothing or not there at all. And the people who are looked down and despised today uh, will be, in fact, 
as the apostles are, will be in fact first. So then chapter 20 is one of those chapter divisions that maybe is not as helpful as the others because this continues his answer. This parable is part of his answer. And if, if you don't see that right away, I just run your eyes down to verse 16. And he says, so the last shall be first and the first last. Well, is that familiar? Yeah, we just saw that, except it's the, it's the backwards order. Uh, 1930 says the first will be last and the last first. 2016 says the last will be first and the first last. So you see, there's a bracket here, and that signals us it's all about the same thing. So that helps us understand this parable, which I find a very challenging parable, but honestly, I find most things challenging. I have to chew most things over before I talk to you good people about it. So uh, this is a challenging parable, but what's the parable about? The parable is about a man who hires laborers to work the whole day, and he tells them all he's going to give them a denarius. And then through the day, he finds people who haven't been hired by anybody, and he tells them, well, you go work in my field, and I'll pay you. And so at the end of the day, he goes and he pays them all, and he starts with the people he'd, he'd hired most recently, and they get a denarius, which is a typical day's wage. They've only worked a couple hours, but they get a full day's wage. And so the first guys think, oh, good, we'll get more, because, you know, obviously, if they get what we were promised, then we worked a lot more. We should get a lot more, and they don't. They, they get the same. And when they object, look at what he says verse 15, the owner says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Well, we could go off on that about politics, couldn't we? But let's not right now. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? All right, I really am biting my tongue. Or is your eye envious because I am generous? And the word there is is good. Are you envious because I'm good? And then Jesus says, so the last shall be first and the first last. So his point being that God will reward out of his goodness, not because people deserve it, because out of God's goodness and everybody will be rewarded uh, and not according to the way human society normally runs. So, well, but that's a shocker. That, that answer is a shocker. It's a shocker to say that the first will be last and the last first. So Jesus says it twice just to make sure that that point gets across. He shocks them and then he shocks them again. Uh, So this is things to come. They're thinking about their future reward. And now we have the next move in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And so Matthew tells us, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, you see, this is the point now. These little geographical markers telling us that he's left Galilee and he's on his way to Jerusalem, where we know, even if we'd never read the gospel before, we know from Jesus' own words that a collision is coming, a catastrophic clash is coming. And so Matthew reminds us that Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, and so he takes them aside to prepare them. And he says, verse 16, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Well, you say that shouldn't be shocking. He said that before. All right, I'll give you that wiggle word. It shouldn't be shocking. Was it shocking? How much of that did they clearly get, the way things went? How much did they clearly get? None of it. It's like, you know, they get to, and these things happen. It's like, why didn't you tell us? 
Well, of course, he told them again and again, but it so did not fit their view of the Messiah that they just, all right, clearly we don't understand what he's saying. Well, they didn't want to understand. It's very hard to get anyone to understand what he doesn't want to understand. Even Jesus uh, didn't get that through their thick skulls. So, but he tells them what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And in recording that, Matthew tells us what's going to happen. So we should be prepared for it as well. So there's a shocker. And the third is the topic of promotion. It starts off very homey, very un- unsurprising. Uh, a nice Jewish mother comes thinking about her son's future. <laughs> and so verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to him with her sons, bowing down. Were they blushing? I don't know. Were they embarrassed? Could have been. Bowing down, oh, that's, that's a nice touch, and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, not that much, really. I just want you to command that my sons be at the top of the kingdom that's, that's, that you're coming to. Isn't that kind of funny? I mean, just jarring. Funny is not the right word, but it, it, doesn't it jar you? He's just said he's going to go and be crucified. And his mother said, these kids' mother says, could you make sure my sons are at the top of this kingdom that's coming? All right. Well, he says, it's not mine to give. It's, it's from my father. They will drink my cup, but my father puts who he wants where he wants. And then comes this point. Now, verse 24, the ten become indignant with the true bro- two brothers. Do you think that they were indignant because it was such an inappropriate question? Or because they wanted to be left and right? <laughs> Probably the latter. So Jesus says something shocking. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Katakuriuo. They, they lord them down. They lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Well, he just kind of said that twice. First, last, first, last. But now he, uh, he gives more to it. He says, really what you need to be thinking about is not how can I best attain rulership. You need to be thinking about how can I best serve? How can I best be of service? And if that weren't a shocking enough point, he says about the most shocking thing he could say in verse 28, just as the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Not your question. Who's the Son of Man? Well, Jesus is. Where does that title come from? That's not a trick question. It's a, maybe a difficult one. Where in the Old Testament is that title, Son of Man? It's in Daniel chapter 7. Where do you see the Son of Man in Daniel 7? Coming with the clouds of heaven to take rule over all the people of the world. And yet he uses that phrase to say he did not come to be served, which Daniel 7 does depict, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom price in the place of many, he says. And so that's your model. I didn't come to lord it over everybody. I came to give my life for the ransom of many. And so, well, that, that is just shocking anyway you care to take it. Any, any angle you want to look at that, it, that, that's the climax of a series of shockers. So they should be prepared for the shocks to come when the king actually comes into his city, what should be his city, what should be the capital of his kingdom. Is it going to be shocking? Oh, it's going to be shocking. 
and he has done what he could to prepare them for the shock that's coming. So this climax is a series of shockers. He reminds them he's not there to prop up the status quo. He's there to speak God's word and do what his name says. Save his people from their sins. Give his soul a ransom price in the place of many, the innumerable masses of God's elect. So now it's time to move out and head towards the climax. Roman numeral two, the king rocks Jerusalem. The king rocks Jerusalem, chapter 20, verse 29 through 21, 22. And I want you to notice how Matthew presents Jesus here because this is a blessed thing. And I, I hope more and more you just see what a beautiful gospel the Holy Spirit uh, uh, inspired uh, to make a beautiful portrait of our beautiful Savior. When, when Matthew records Jesus' works, words about his coming to give his soul uh, a ransom for many, uh, so in literal terms, how did he give his soul? How did he do that? by acts of service and kindness? What is he talking about giving his soul as a ransom? How did he do that? On the cross. And, and what was he doing on the cross? He was offering a, a, an atoning sacrifice for God's elect. He was offering a sacrifice for sinners. And, and who was it in Israel who offered sacrifices for sinners? What, what office did that? Priest, that's a priestly thing to do. Well, now let's look ahead. What do we see coming up? Well, three times in the, in the section to come, we're going to see Jesus hailed as the son of David. Now, who is the son of David? What office would he uh, occupy? He wouldn't be a priest. What office would he occupy? A king. So that's the title of the king messiah. And then one other thing we see three times in this section, three, three, we see Jesus performing symbolic acts to symbolize something about God's judgment or God's dealing with his people. He will ride in on the donkey. He will cleanse the temple. He will curse a fig tree. Three symbolic acts. Who was it? What office in the Old Testament performed a symbolic acts to communicate God's words to his people? Prophet. And so you see here Matthew setting forth Jesus as the prophet, the king, the priest. And who is it who is the prophet, the king, and the priest? The Messiah, Christ. And that's Jesus. That's Matthew's portrait of him. So we see Roman numeral God's 2, the king rocks Jerusalem. He will ride the son the of David nears his city. And I say son of David three times because Jesus is hailed as son of David three times in this section. So the son of David nears his city in verses 29 through 34. Uh, we read in uh, 2029, and as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Well, what's the significance of that? The significance, uh, I'll quote a um, New Testament scholar, R.T. France. He says, Jericho was the last settlement the Galilean pilgrim to Jerusalem would go through after crossing the Jordan from Perea and before setting off up the long climb to the capital, more than 3,000 feet above. The capital is Jerusalem. So this is the, as you're coming from Galilee to Jerusalem, this is the last settlement that you pass through as you begin your 3,000 foot climb up to Jerusalem. That's, that's why he notes that they're leaving Jericho. He's just showing their progress 
to the clash in Jerusalem. And what do the two blind men call Jesus twice? Son of David. Son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David, he says. Son of David, the first of three times he's called this in this section. They're blind, but they see that he's the Messiah. They see that he's the the one who's to sit on the throne of David in fulfillment of God's words. Just keep that in your mind. Two blind men hail him on his way to Jerusalem as son of David, and, and he heals them. Letter B, the son of David confronts his city, chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. And uh, this is what we call the triumphal entry. I I guess you could call it that, but it's not a very long-lived triumph. But the first thing we see is his presentation to the crowd in Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry. Chapter 21, verse 1. And when they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, telling them to go and, and find a donkey and a colt with her, and say the Lord has need of them. And why are they doing that? They're doing that to fulfill Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, verse 5, Below your king is coming to you lowly and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. So this is, many prophecies were fulfilled just by what Jesus did, but Jesus did deliberately engineer the fulfillment of this prophecy because he wanted to trigger their minds to think of this prophecy, that he was there in fulfillment of that. He was, what does it say? Your king. And you go back to Zechariah, it says that he's bringing salvation. And just skip ahead, what do they say? They say, Hosanna, Hoshana. What does that mean? please save. That's what Hosanna means, please save, or save now. So he, uh, he engineers this and enters in, and the crowds indeed are going ahead of him. Those who followed were crying out saying, Hosanna, please save to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He enters Jerusalem, and they're all saying, who is this? And they say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. There it is right there in just short order. He, as a priest, will offer a sacrifice for many. He, as king, enters Jerusalem. And by this act, they see that he's a prophet. So um, there is um, the presentation to the crowd. And they hail him as the son of David in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's his presentation. Next we see the collision with the leaders in the temple. Chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, this, this was a nice little business they had going there. I'm interested to ask a show of hands how many people are thinking of churches that have Starbucks in their lobby, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But this was a nice little business they had there, that they had inspectors who, when you brought your perfectly good sheep, would find a flaw with your sheep and say, oh, but we've got one right here you can buy, twice the price. 
And they would change your money for money that's acceptable in the temple. But of course, there was a little fee for that change. And they had a nice little business going there. But it wasn't nice in Jesus' eyes at all. And he threw everything into an uproar. He threw everything into a chaos. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. Well, now, did they say thank you so much? We appreciate your pointing that out to us. We've been meaning to do something about that. Thank you for the impetus. I could ask for a show of hands how many of you think that's their attitude. That is not their attitude at all, as we'll see in a moment. But the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Works of the kingdom of God, showing that he's the king of that kingdom. But, verse 15, when the chief priests and scribes saw the marvelous things which he'd done, and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, what? Hosanna to the son of David. Oh, there's the second of three times when he's hailed as the son of David. They became indignant. Children again. You see, they have no use for children. So they say, don't you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, yes, <laughs> in fact, I do. Have you never read? Oh, you just got to love it when he does that. I mean, these are people who've, who've memorized the Old Testament. And he says to them, did you ever read that verse? <laughs> How, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise for yourself? And then he left them and spent the night in the city of, of Bethany. Well, he left them. Actually, Matthew's verb is a strong one. He, he abandoned them. He marched off on them. He had, he had no more use for them. So he, he left them. So uh, he has symbolically presented himself as the king. And now he's at a collision with the rulers in verses 12 through 17. And that's the second of his symbolic acts. In the symbolism of God's coming judgment, he purges the temple. He turns the things over and, and absolutely ruins everything. And so now, as I said, for the second time, he's hailed as the, as the um, king of David. Certainly, this is, the, this is the third time he's hailed as the son of David. So who's hailed him as son of David? Two blind men have hailed him as son of David. Children have hailed him as son of David. Who doesn't see that he's the son of David? The leaders, the would-be leaders, the experts in the law, the people who are in charge of worship and spirituality in Jerusalem, the people who are sure that they are mature and they see perfectly well, but they don't see the, king, the son of David when he's standing right in front of them. Blind men see it. Children see it. They don't see it, you see? So three times son of David, he's committed two symbolic acts, and now comes the third symbolic act. We've had a pr presentation to the crowd, we've had a collision with the leaders, and now we have a caution to the showy hypocrites in his city. Chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. In the morning, he's heading back for Jerusalem now, and he's hungry. He sees a fig tree, and it, it has leaves. Well, now, leaves should mean that there's fruit. The presence of leaves say that there's fruit. You see leaves from a distant, distance, you know you can come up and find fruit on the branches. They advertise fruit. There's a reason why I'm stressing this. They advertise fruit. And so Jesus comes up and he looks and under the leaves there's no fruit at all. 
So he curses the, the fig tree. Now this is very unusual. He's never done anything quite like this before. He's never done a miracle that, that primarily had something to do with him. And this is a nature miracle, kind of unusual. And it's, if you will, a negative miracle. It's not healing somebody. It's not raising the dead. It's actually cursing a fig tree. So I tell you what, I mean, this is something that calculated to catch our attention and, and hold it. And so he says, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And the fig tree begins withering right away. Well, what is that about? So I don't know. He was disappointed in the fig tree. Oh, no, come on. Look in the setting. What's that about? What had just happened? He'd come into this religious city, gone to the temple, and seen all the trappings of religion there set up for commercial profit. And he'd torn it apart, and the leaders, instead of repenting in humiliation for their sin, they confronted him and, and told him they were offended that people were calling him the son of David. So, in other words, what could you say? He'd seen an advertisement that these are very religious, godly people, but then when he looked closer, was there any fruit? And there was no fruit. Just like that fig tree, which was used in the Old Testament as a symbol for Israel. So he curses it, and then the apostles are, are shocked that he could do that. And he tells them, well, they, they, they can call on the power of God by faith too. Uh, which they need to know because they're going to have a mission to these same people. After he's resurrected and ascended, they're going to need to come and bring the gospel to those people and be assured that they've got the power of God with them as they do so. So, his third symbolic act, and that should be a warning to the showy hypocrites in the city, but obviously it was not taken to heart. Roman numeral 3 the king rocks the leaders. Chapter 21, verse 23 through 2246. The king rocks the leaders. Well, we see here three times they challenge him, or they try. We see three challenges. We see three confrontations, I should say. And they try to challenge him. So, first of all, they, we see a challenge to the king concerning authority. Starting in 21:23, he entered the temple, and boy, they're ready for him now. Boy, oh boy, they are ready now. They are ready. You know, they're tanned, they're rested, they're ready to go. The first time he kind of caught them by surprise, but not this time. They are ready this time. They are ready. So he comes in, and they say to him, "By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority?" Well, boy, that's going to really set him back on his heels, isn't it? Doesn't work out that way, though. He says, well, I'll tell you what. I'd be happy to answer that question. Let me ask you a really easy one you've had years to think about, and you should be absolutely ready to answer this question. I mean, this is child. I almost feel silly asking experts and scholars like you such a simple question. But let me just pose it. You answer it, then I'll give you your answer, okay? Here we go. Here's your question. Just one thing. The baptism of John, from what source? Heaven or men? They can't answer that question. John came hailing Jesus as Messiah and calling for repentance and baptizing repentant Jews as if they were Gentiles. And so if they say, well, his baptism came from heaven, then the question's going to be, so why didn't you repent and follow his prophetic lead? 
And if they say from men, well, all the people think of John as a prophet, and they just let that go. And so, because they're not motivated by love of God, they're motivated by pride, self-seeking, hypocritical superficiality. Well, they just say, um, we can't answer that question. We don't know, verse 27, and Jesus says, ah, oh, well, then I won't answer your question either. So the first question that they give is unanswered. And just let me tell you, looking ahead, the section ends with Jesus asking them a question they can't answer. So it starts with a question that they won't answer, and it ends with a question they can't answer. It's just a, another one of the beauties of the way the Holy Spirit moved Matthew to write this gospel. So there's an initial question and response, which we just saw. But now Jesus responds further with three parables. And these three parables speak more to their unwillingness to confront what he just put before him. So the first is the parable of the two sons. The father tells them both to go out and do something. One says, I won't. But later he relents and he goes out and does it. The other one says, you betcha, I'll get right on that. And then he goes off and plays video games or, or fishes or whatever. Doesn't do it. And so Jesus says, so which one did the will of the Father? And obviously it's the first one, the one who repented after the initial wrong response. And so he says, verse 31, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the what, will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. And you didn't even think better of it afterwards. <laughs> you saw the, the, the obvious sinners indeed repenting and believing him, and you didn't think better of it. You didn't repent. You didn't humble yourself. So yeah, there's, there's zing number one through a parable. And then there's another parable, a different parable, but also a very condemning parable. There's a landowner who planted a vineyard, and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. The vine growers, uh, when he sent his slaves to receive the fruit, they took his slaves, verse 35, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. He sent another group, they did the same thing. And afterwards he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son and you say, I, that doesn't make sense, and I say it's a parable. It's, it's not a narrative. It's a, it's a parable to make a point. They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said, oh, well, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they throw him out of the vineyard, like Jesus will be taken out of Jerusalem, and they killed him, like Jesus will be killed, by these guys he's talking to, or at their instigation. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, they answered his question. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds of the proper season. And he said, did you never read in the scriptures? There he does it again. He does it again. Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Oh, that makes me think of the fig tree, doesn't it, you? Yeah, that's what the fig tree was about. 
And he who falls on this stone, it will be broken to pieces, but on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. There's no winning in opposing this stone. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Well, they're not entirely dim. They get that point, but it doesn't bring them to repentance. What does it bring them to? Seeking to seize him, verse 46. And so now that brings a third parable, the parable of the wedding feast, chapter 22. He answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast, sent out his slaves to call those who had been called to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. So he sent out other slaves, saying, everything's ready, come. And they ignored them, went to their business. Some of them abused the slaves who were sent. And now, verse 7, the king is enraged. He sends his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And he sends his slaves out to just get the, the dregs, to get just people who were hanging around. So he's going to have people come to his wedding, to his son's wedding. And they do bring people in, and they come in. So the people who should have come didn't come. And you think the parable's over. I mean, this is kind of an ending, but there's just a little bit more. Verse 12, 11, pardon me. There's a guy who, who isn't dressed in wedding clothes. Now, we'll look at that more closely when we're there. But either he hasn't accepted the clothes offered by the king, or he just doesn't care about the son. He just sneaks himself in to get the free food. And the king says, verse 13, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are elect. The Greek word eklektos, few are chosen, few are elect. The call goes out to many, but the subset of the elect is smaller than that call goes. And the call is going out to all these leaders. They're all getting the call. They're all getting the invitation. But... Most are not responding. And this should teach the disciples too because uh, it's a hard thing to see that the people that they were raised to respect don't believe in Christ. Their master, their Lord, their teacher. But here the people we've been told are the experts. They don't believe him. But Jesus' parables set in context what's going on. Their evil, unbelieving response. So, This is all in response to their challenge of authority. Jesus responds very thoroughly about his authority and about their being on the wrong side of that issue. Secondly, letter B, leaders who try to stump the king. Well, again, three times they try to stump him in this section. Verses 15 through 40, you see three times. First of all, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, there's a weird alliance. The fundamentalist-type Pharisees and the political sellout Herodians. I mean, that's just a weird coupling, but they are brought together by their hatred of Jesus. So they come in verses 15 through 22, and they ask about taxes to Caesar. I think they're really going to get him on that because there's no no good answer to that. If he says pay taxes, then all the patriots are going to think that's a terrible answer. And if he says, well, don't pay taxes, then they've got him, turn him into Rome, right? There's, there's no winning in, in answering that question. There's, there's no good answer to that question. Well, except the one he gives, which just absolutely turns. But it's interesting. He says, bring me a coin. Like, I guess he didn't carry money. 
but show me a coin and, and says, no, whose, whose picture's on that coin? And they say, Caesar's. Oh, he says, fine, we give Caesar what's Caesar's, but you give God what's God's. And what's God's? What, what has the image of God on it? They do. And they're not, you see. So that didn't go very well. So the Sadducees, I say in the most um, southern sense of the phrase, bless their hearts. The Sadducees give it a go. Uh, because they've got little cute things they know to say about resurrection. That they don't believe in the resurrection. So verses 23 through 33, Sadducees, they, they weave this tale about seven brothers who hand this poor woman down from brother to brother. Each one of them dies. And um, uh, no implication about her cooking. They just die. Um, and so the last one dies, and, and they ask what they think is their big, absolutely, this, we've got him now, question, verse 28, whose wife will she be? And Jesus just nails them. Well, you, you're just, there's just two problems. You don't know what the Bible says, and you don't know what God can do. Otherwise, you're great, you know. In other words, they've completely messed it up. In the resurrection, they won't marry or give in marriage. And then he quotes from a verse that shows that those who know God live. They have eternal life with God. And the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So again, that didn't go well at all. And then a law teacher comes, and the, the Jews had counted 613 commandments in the Old Testament. He asked them, asked Jesus uh, what's really a, a good question. This is the best of the three. Um, he says, what's the great commandment of them all? And Jesus answers that one straightforward. Love the Lord your God is the first the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's, there's, there's their three attempts. They've challenged him over and over. But now he challenges them. He has a question for them. Verses 41 through 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. <clears throat> saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, we just heard again and again, hadn't we? Three times. Three different people calling him what? Son of David. So whose son is the Christ? And they say, well, son of David. So there it is again. Now, Jesus doesn't dispute that, but he has another question. Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? And he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? He's not saying he's not his son. He's saying there's more to it than that. You started out questioning my authority. I'm ending up pointing you to my identity. He's son of David, but who else's son is he? Who else's son is he? It's the son of God, son of David, son of God. But notice verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. <laughs> they, figured, they, they figured out that wasn't working well at all. So isn't it interesting? It starts off with him asking a question they won't answer. Where did John's baptism come from? And it ends with him asking them a question. And him not answering their question. They ask him a question he won't answer because they won't answer his question. But it ends with them not answering a question because they don't know the answer to his question. They had not figured that out. So they fold. If you don't 
play cards, folding is when you realize that you're absolutely beaten and you put your cards on the table and leave the game. And that's what they do. So, what a masterful presentation of Christ Matthew has given us by inspiration of the Spirit. Matthew presents Jesus to us as the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, the son of David and Messiah, son of David, son of God. Perfect prophet speaks God's very word to us. Perfect priest makes the atonement for our sins. The perfect king will come and restore this ruined, broken planet and rule it. And the Jewish leaders and their followers, blind fools. They reject him. They don't see who he is. They don't bow the knee to him. So I just uh, close with this simple question. Where do you stand? God forbid that we today here sit and think, oh, what fools. Those, Those Jewish leaders are such fools. How could they not see Jesus for who he is? And we ourselves have not yet seen him for who he is. We've not yet seen how we need him to be our priest, our prophet, our king, how we need him to be our savior, how we need to bow our knee so that he might do in our hearts that work that God alone can do and that none of us can do for his. If you have not, I I call you, I urge you to come to the Lord Jesus and trust in him and he will save. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this dazzling, brilliant word and the beauties of the way that the Lord Jesus is beautifully portrayed. We thank you for him, his great salvation. Thank you that he still lives, that he lives, he still saves, he intercedes, and that one day he will come and he will reign over your kingdom from that city which did not see him, did not recognize him, but one day will own him as king. Hasten that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.